You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey everyone, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the pleasure and honor to sit down with Julia Momose and talk about her journey into the beverage world. Julia is an award-winning celebrated beverage pro She's a bar owner responsible for the cocktail to go movement in Chicago and soon to be the author of The Way of the Cocktail. Julia shares with us her beginnings in Japan, her love for the Japanese culture, heritage and people, food and cocktail, and what led her to the U.S. in becoming this really inspiring human that she is. So grab your favorite Toki cocktail and enjoy the show. Julia, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we so appreciate. I know we reached out to you. We really wanted to talk to you and and get your perspective on, you know, this very special month that we're all celebrating this year and hopefully every year moving forward, um, which is Asian American Pacific Island Heritage Month. So thank you. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. Um, Julia, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? How did you wind up in the beverage world? Sure. So I was born and raised in Japan. I was born in Nara and then grew up in Kyoto. So I'm a Kansai girl through and through. My father is half Japanese, but he was born in the U.S., moved to Japan right after he got married. And so I grew up there with my three brothers, my parents, and I was in Japan until I was 18. I started off working in the hospitality industry while I was in high school, just as a part-time job and completely fell in love with it. And I was surrounded by these incredible professionals who inspired me to get into the hospitality industry, even after I moved out of Japan and went to America for university. Wow. So you lived in Japan all the way. So you were born there up until 18. That's a big part of your life. It is. Yeah. Japan's home for me. I've been in America a while now, but Japan is definitely where my, where my heart is. And when I am really happy or angry or surprised, I tend to just revert back into Japanese. So that's, I call Japanese my heart language and English Mm -hmm. is the language I use in the day-to-day currently. That is fascinating. And so is Japanese your first language then and English your second, or did you grow up learning both? I would say both. I'm sure my mom could tell you which language came first. We spoke English at home and then Japanese everywhere else. So, you know, I was probably saying like mama (laughs) early on, but I think that's a universal one. So who knows if it was Japanese or English? Wow. What was school like there as far as going to school and what was life? Just so fascinated. 
I lived in in Korea as a kid, but it was never a part of my day-to-day life. So be interested to know a little bit more about that. Sure. So school was, I would say my schooling experience in Japan was probably atypical. My parents didn't necessarily want us to get into the very regimented testing oriented style that the school system is there where you get into a good a good um oh the English word kindergarten to get into a good elementary school and so on and so forth and with testing you can get into better and better programs so they homeschooled us for a while so I was homeschooled until about fifth grade or so and my parents went to Japan as missionaries one of the co-pastors actually opened up an academy because there were quite a few of us missionary kids slash mixed kids slash uh, kids who had lived abroad and came back to Japan and then were bullied going to regular schools. So they opened up an academy and it was kind of just a bunch of us misfits, I guess you could say. Uh, There were maybe 12 people in the school at first. And by the time I graduated, there are 200 students. And we would have our typical classes, but depending on the teacher, it would be taught in Japanese one year. English next, or maybe even semester to semester, it would change. We would build our own school buildings as part of our day-to-day or even curriculum. We'd have half days of of construction and then half days of studying in the old classrooms. So I would say my schooling experience was very different, but it was fun. (laughs) That's amazing. When you say that you spent, you know, half of the time helping to build and the other half of the time, you know, doing more learning by book learning, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. I mean, that is very different than the way that we do school here in the U.S. And so when you came over to the U.S., were you, did you have a lot of culture shock? Very, very much so. Coming to America, I was, you know, in that sense, just fresh off the the boat, fresh off the plane. And I went to school in upstate New York. I was in Ithaca, New York at Cornell. And I remember struggling to be recognized as being different because my features being mixed are very, I'm like a chameleon. People will almost mold me in the image that they want me to be. And at the same time, I tend to mold myself into what that image I think they want me to be is. And when I first came to America, I didn't want to be seen as an American in that sense, because I didn't know any of whether it's pop culture references or, you know, things that were topics of discussion or anything American really was very foreign to me. And so I wasn't comfortable being in those conversations. But when I said that I was from Japan or that I was Japanese, I was met with disbelief and more often than not people saying, well, prove it to me. And so that was really, really tough. But at the same time, when I was in Japan, I was in a constant state of proving that I was Japanese as well, because I don't look Japanese immediately. But in Japan, it was much easier because I could just be myself. And after a while, you know, people be like, oh yeah, you're Japanese. (laughs) And then that would be it. But in America, it's every time I would meet a new person, I would have to go through that process again. It was never, yeah, Julia's Japanese. There's always a, a fight almost. Yeah, that's very relatable. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit on our last episode with Liam and being from a mixed culture as well. My father's 
white American and my mom's Korean. And that was something that we had discussed is when I'm with my Korean family, I'm like the white girl. And then when I'm with Americans, they see me as the Asian, you know? And um, so I could definitely relate with that. But I just think your story is so fascinating. It's, It's very different because you you know, that's the culture that you identified with. I mean, you were there for pretty much your entire childhood and even your adolescence and adult life to 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going to upstate New York. Like... <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a big change. It was also a change that I was seeking. I grew up in a very loving and wonderful household and also a very conservative household. And I love my parents so much, but I was raised in a dry house. Um, You know, we went to church every single week. I was Pastor Chris's only daughter. There was a very high level of expectation placed on me to be a certain way. And so I didn't really have the chance to grow into my own person. So being home in Japan really was both uncomfortable and comfortable at the same time. And so I felt that I did need to get away from that and have a change. So just going to America for school made the most sense. And it definitely helped me figure out who I was or am. (laughs) And that's not a bad school, Cornell. So you definitely went to a great school. And and what made you choose that? So in Japan, the school system, right? You start off as a little kid to go to the best school, to go then to the next stage of great school to ultimately have a really good job. So prestige behind the name is very important. And at the time, my intent was to move back home after graduating. So I wanted to go to a university that was well known. So I figured I'd go to an Ivy League school and then be able to come back home and get a job (laughs) wherever I needed to be. I started off, I was undecided in arts and sciences with my major. And then partway through, I transferred over to the human ecology school there to study design and environmental analysis, which was essentially interior architecture and design, but with a focus on purpose and design. So we did a lot of studies of hospitals and schools and and restaurants as well. And through all of that, though, I was working to pay for school and falling more and more in love with actually working in these spaces. And so ultimately decided to make my career as a bartender and as a restaurant person. And, you know, the thing about Cornell is that it's a, it's a very tough school. And I remember reading all of these different statistics on it before moving over to America. And one is that it has one of the highest suicide rates of any of the schools. And just in the time that I was there, I lost a lot of people. So I actually left after three years there. And I thought I was going to go back and finish my degree, but then I didn't. So I have three years of Cornell (laughs) under my belt. And I have these weird dreams that I actually go and get my degree, (laughs) but I haven't done it yet. Um, But yeah, it was that was it was a very tumultuous time for me. I would say leaving Japan and coming to America was really, really hard. But I'm glad for all of those experiences, because that definitely affects who I am today. But I'm glad that I stepped away. It was it was important to do that. It was hard for me to feel like I was giving up on that. But it also let me fully focus on 
hospitality and bartending. So I was able to find something good from it in the end. Yeah, that's, that's so important. And I think at that age, right? I mean, if you came after 18, 19, it's such a vulnerable time. I mean, I think this whole idea that you're an adult and you can go take on the pressures of life in your late teens, early twenties is just unreasonable. It's such a vulnerable time and having so much pressure. And, and I think we could definitely relate. And so where, when you made that choice to leave, where did you, um, where did you go from there? I went home. You did? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Flew back to Japan, but that also proved to be kind of difficult going from America where I had been exposed to all of these different ways of living and thoughts and people and beliefs and going back home to my family was, again, both very comforting, but also a realization that that wasn't going to be my way of life anymore. And I didn't want in that moment of feeling really vulnerable to get sucked back into it and when I am in Japan, though, and especially when I'm in my parents' house, you know, I will respect their way of living in the way that they want me to behave when I'm in that home and everything. But it's not necessarily my true self. And so I didn't want to, in, in a sense, get sucked back into it because I also felt that if I didn't keep pushing forward, that I would just settle down and not just give up, but what is the word compromise that I would end up compromising myself for comfort in the moment. But ultimately I think I would have been very uncomfortable. So I went home for a, a period and then uh, my, um, I had my first boyfriend when I moved to America and I had broken up with him in college because he was very, very jealous and kind of like this clingy type. And I was a bartender. So everyone kind of knew who I was and I knew them. And so it just wasn't working out between us, but we were on good terms and we had been chatting while I was back home in Japan. And he had just gotten into a graduate program at Loyola in Maryland and invited me to come to Baltimore. And I was like, you know what, this might be a good opportunity for me to get back out to the US and see if I can figure out some more stuff for myself. So I did, I moved to Baltimore and, you know, within a week or so, I told him this isn't going to work out <laughs> between us anymore. But I had started working at a little cafe and at a cocktail bar and, you know, I was meeting people and again, learning and getting creative with beverage. And so I stayed for about a year and a half there. So that is the, he's the one who kind of brought me back to America from Japan. And I've been living in the US ever since then. Wow. Well, we thank him, you know, in a way <laughs> because he got you back here. So from Baltimore, then how do you arrive to Chicago where you currently live? Some of my really best friends and regulars at the bar where I was working in Baltimore were chefs. And they would come in and challenge me with either ingredients or these drink ideas or techniques. And at one point, uh, one of them, Gerald, 
some right. He told me, he said, Julia, you need to leave Baltimore. <laughs> You're not learning as much as you could here. Like you need to go somewhere else. You need to go to somewhere like, like Chicago. And he started telling me about Grant Ackett's and the Alinea group and the aviary. And he started um, sharing with me like more techniques and, you know, ways to be in that type of kitchen and stuff like that and really encouraged me to think bigger than Baltimore. And he was right. You know, Baltimore is Charm City. It's amazing. And I have incredible friends who I made while I was there. But I think ultimately he was completely right that I wasn't, I hit a point where I wasn't learning anymore. So I applied for a stage and I remember emailing um, some random email address and I think I was emailing with Charles Jolie. <laughs> so I was able to go and stage there and they offered me the job and I wasn't sure at first because the style of service there is very different where bartenders are behind a fence, kind of like a cage essentially. And there's very much this kitchen culture there. But I met a bartender named Jason Savayos. He was the bartender in the office at the time and what he was doing down there in this beautiful um, basement bar with the ingredients was so inspiring and his passion and he, he said to me that he was waiting for someone like me to come so that he could take some time off and go travel and make bitters and visit his favorite distilleries. And because of Jason, I decided to take the job. So moved to Chicago. It was in May of 2013. I moved over to Chicago and started working there. Thank you for sharing that story of Jason. He was yeah. a friend of mine and just a beautiful person. So I really appreciate that. You know, yeah. he, was, he was such an inspiring gentleman. Absolutely. So I'm, it's so fun for me to hear that he had such an impact in your life and career. So what a great tribute. He, he's incredible. I think of him all the time. And, you know, it's funny because he went to work at the Dawson and I also started working part-time at the Dawson and mm. he really influenced me, I think more than, more than he knew. So. Wow. That's amazing. Could you tell us a little bit, I think one of the things that makes you so unique and, and you bring something different to this, this industry and, and the bar culture that I think a lot of people recognized is the fact that, you know, you've been immersed and, and raised in this Japanese culture. Could you talk a little about, and especially around hospitality and food and, um, and service, could you talk a little about what really resonates with you from the Japanese culture that you bring with you in your approach? Absolutely. There are so many things that make Japanese food and beverage so incredible. One, I believe, is the pureness of it, the simplicity, the desire to highlight quality ingredients that are grown with love and with care and applying that same respect to the ingredients because in respecting those ingredients you're respecting the farmers and the people who made them there is a, a very close connection to the place of origin and when these ingredients show up either on the plate or in the bowl or in the glass there's often a story connected to its place of origin. It's not just about 
the chef or the bartender. It's about the people who came before and it's about the journey that was taken to get to this point. We are very seasonally minded as well. And so I think a really fun modern way to see this is in the convenience stores in Japan when springtime comes around and it's sakura season. The All of the shelves are just pink, like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Lipton, every brand comes out with some kind of sakura inspired drink and the packaging is all there. And then when we come into like the rainy season or when the wisteria are in season, we start to see more purples and the hydrangeas around this time of year. And then in the summertime, when it's just so extremely hot out, that's when we will hang fooding, which are little wind chimes outside so that you can hear the breeze coming and then hearing the, the beautiful music you know that the wind is there and that it's also cooling you down. And it's just like a, fra- a favorite tradition to eat watermelon slices, you know, while you're sitting out there sweating a little bit and there's salt on your fingers and the salt of your body makes the watermelon taste that much sweeter. And it's nothing fancy, you know, it's just embracing the moment and being in that season with the produce that is fresh in that season. As a bartender, It can be a challenge to be seasonally minded because it's so easy to work with any flavor at any time of the year. Because when we work with distilled spirits, we don't really have to think about shelf life. We don't have to think about plucking a berry at its peak ripeness and eating it within a certain time frame. It's it's already there in that beautiful liqueur. So finding ways to connect to farmers and building relationships with uh, the chefs who I've worked with in the past has been a way that I try to bring that into my bar program, whether it is ordering specialty things for the bar or my favorite thing really is to find all of the fresh ingredients that they're bringing in and take the leftovers, take the little scraps and bits and pieces and turn those into juices or other types of infusions and little concoctions. So taking that fresh taste of spring or summer and turning it into a liquid that can be used in drinks to highlight that element of the season. Well, that's such a beautiful translation of how you bring the Japanese culture into what you do. And I think you're so on point. I, at one period, my aunt was married to a Japanese man. So I was kind of immersed with that side. And I know that the one thing was really big is about quality, you know, and Mm -hmm. and everything is about the integrity of the product and being top quality. And, And I could you know, when you think of Japanese and and really being that true farm to table and about being from a sense of place, you know, can kind of relate a lot with, I think, the Italian culture and, and how it's more about that simplicity, like less than three ingredients and let the actual ingredient shine versus what you do to it. Yes, definitely. I actually wrote a book, which is coming out in October of this year. And the publisher approached me for it, which was a really interesting experience for me. But I received an email from the editor saying that they had an idea for a book. They wanted to do a book on Japanese cocktails and Japanese bartending. And they posed the questions in a very, you know, very simple, straightforward way, essentially saying, we want a a book 
about what it is to be a Japanese bartender. And I started thinking about it and how it's impossible to put that into such simple, straightforward terms. Because like you said, there's so many other cultures who celebrate pure, fresh, simple ingredients who eat seasonally, that it's not just an inherently Japanese thing by any means, but there are some ingredients that are unique to Japan. But at the same time, just because there's yuzu in a cocktail or sansho or even Japanese whiskey in a cocktail, it doesn't necessarily make it a Japanese cocktail either. There's there's a, a heart and a culture behind it that is the intangible element, something that can't necessarily be taught. Maybe it is something that you're that you're born into. Had I had been born and raised in America, even being part Japanese, I doubt that I would have, I wouldn't call myself Japanese. I would probably call myself American, but because I was born there, I am, I am Japanese. Momose Judia. That's just who I am. And so the drinks that I make are as Japanese as I am. So also are my drinks. And writing this book, I got to do some really fun and intense research and reading about how cocktails came to Japan and how they survived earthquakes and fires and a war and a recession. And here we are today with Japanese bartenders really taking the global stage as experts in the craft and tools being inspired by Japanese bar tools or the way that Japanese bartenders work. And it's such a incredible culture and part of our drinking heritage, I would say that I'm so excited to share a little piece of here in America. Can't wait for your book to come out. And it, I believe it, it's called The Way of the Cocktail. Is that yes. correct? Yes. yes. Yeah. So we will look forward to that in October. October 5th, it October will release. 5th. Okay. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Listeners, did you hear that? October 5th, The Way of the Cocktail. Be watching. And will it, where will it be available? Do you know? So it's out for pre-order now. Oh, it's perfect. On the... Um, it's by Clerks and Potters, the publisher, but it's on the Penguin Random House mm-hmm. website. And they're listing more and more bookstores who have it currently. So yes, it's on Amazon, but there are also a lot of awesome independent bookstores who will be carrying it. And I've been starting to reach out to folks to get some more bookstores in Chicago to bring it in as well. So stay tuned for that. But you can start purchasing it now for pre-order. So, <laughs> oh, great, <laughs> listeners, listen up! That's fantastic. And will you be doing any book signings and get out there and promote? Absolutely. You know, now that we're getting out of this crazy pandemic. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited for that. I feel like the timing is very serendipitous. I got my second uh, vaccination dose last week. So in the middle of my two weeks post second vaccine and very excited for for what's to come and for more people to be able to get the vaccine and just to feel that sense of lessened anxiety. It's been a very stressful time. And I hope that this is a little a little piece of hope that will be something that we can all hold on to and, and build upon. 
Well, during this pandemic, you have been a rock for the industry. And I would love to talk about the different ways that you were such a force in getting, you know, cocktails to go and all the support for the industry. So and I think we're kind of working backwards here, starting with the book that's coming. <laughs> and, we'll about, and then, we'll, you know, we'll just work backwards. But can you talk to us about what drove you to jump into action to make true change in our community during the most dire time that we've seen in our lifetime? Yeah. So when the pandemic really started to become recognized as a pandemic and as a a true national crisis, and the governor of Illinois announced that bars and restaurants were going to have to shut down for about two weeks. I remember feeling deep down that this was not going to be a short-term thing and immediately started thinking, well, how am I going to take care of, of my staff? How am I going to pay all of my bills? My bar is located in It's called the Fulton River District, but you can think of it as the West Loop, which is a pretty expensive place to have a business. And about a day or so after the governor shut down all of the bars and restaurants, he started to put out some bulletins with executive orders, one of which said that places with on-premise liquor license were allowed to sell bottles for carryout and delivery. So essentially we could um, kind of become not a slashy, but, (laughs) you know, essentially have that package license. And so we all became mini liquor stores essentially overnight and people were selling off their expensive bottles of, of whiskey and there were auctions for wine happening and businesses were really doing everything they could to survive those two weeks, which then became three. And then we saw that it was going to become more and more and more. And I looked into selling my cocktails to go because as a business owner, <laughs> we we build our system on cocktail sales and knowing that we can turn a $15 bottle of gin into $150 worth of cocktails on the low side, right? And I was told, no, you can't sell cocktails to go. And so I started a petition on change.org and a liquor attorney by the name of Sean O'Leary, he goes by the Irish liquor lawyer here in Chicago, reached out and said he believed in the cause and wanted to help. And then one of my regulars, Ian B. Craft, who um, at the time was working in marketing and communications, reached out and said, this matters to me. What can I do? And so we formed a group called Cocktails for Hope with the desire and the mission to change the law in Illinois to allow bars and restaurants to sell our cocktails for carryout and delivery. And it took, it took so, it felt like a very long time, but in retrospect, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't that long, but um, started the process in March. And then by June, I was able to sell my cocktails for carryout here in Chicago. And honestly, that saved my bar. I was able to then hire back some furloughed staff. I was able to hire our current chef de cuisine, Emery, and build up a food program and then hire another person. And we survived the winter and we are now excitedly talking about reopening (laughs) in the summer and a little bit from now. But selling cocktails to go was such an incredible step for us 
alcohol sales bars in general have been demonized in this country and especially in this city for a very long time and there has been no change in liquor laws for years so it's my hope that through this pandemic that things have been shaken up enough for us to start rebuilding and restructuring and creating a system that is better for small businesses better for people so yeah <laughs> yes you you were Definitely a force during that time because we we saw it everywhere, Cocktails for Hope. And, you know, we just, we thank you on behalf of the industry for really driving that charge. And I know that it was not just for you, but for for all the bar owners and restaurant owners. And, and I think if anything, this pandemic has opened our eyes to how big bars and restaurants what a big impact they are to the broader community and how much value they add. And it's not just one of these speakers said it, it's not just about the customer that can't go and buy a drink, right? It's about the people that own the business. It's about the people that work there. It's about the vendors, the farmers, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a long line. Um, so really great that you were able to do that and, and really make that change. And I know it was longer than it should have been, but it happened. And, and where are you today with your place and, and how are you guys doing now? So, Currently, we are operating like a cafe, so opening at 11 a.m. and closing at 7 p.m. I made a whole new Instagram account for us called Cafe Kumiko. Mm -hmm. The official <laughs> Instagram account is Bar Kumiko, but it was just a fun way to, to highlight that we are doing something a little bit different. We opened up our windows on Displane Street on the west side of the building and keeping everything very socially distant and making sure above all that the staff felt safe working there and being there. So folks can order at the window. And then I built a little outdoor space that I call the garden with lots of plants. Oh. And they can go sit down at a little bench area in the garden. And then we bring everything to another window where they can take it and then eat outside or have a drink outside or take matcha or coffee to go. So that's been, that's been a lot of fun, actually. I love coffee and tea, and I've been able to highlight some favorite little cafe treats from back home as well. I just put on the menu a drink called Ichigo Miruku, which is basically just strawberry milk, the blending oh, puree of love. strawberries with milk. <laughs> it's like very much a childhood favorite and treat of mine. And then I do one with matcha where you layer some matcha on top. And so when you look at it in the cup, we use these clear compostable cups. It's this pinkish red on the bottom. And then I do a little white layer of soy milk and then the green matcha on top. So it looks like a strawberry which is kind of fun. So <laughs> that sounds amazing. And there's so many similarities with, you know, the Korean culture and the Japanese culture. Cause I remember the strawberry flavored milks and yes. I just love anything strawberry flavored in Korean candy because it has that like milky taste. And so, um, did you always serve food or is that kind of a new thing that you did? And, and what, what type of items do you serve in, in the cafe? Kumiko? Food is a really important part of Japanese drinking culture. I feel like we're always eating and drinking at the same time. 
even if it's like a small little snack with tea or at izakaya at kind of the gastro pub bars and um, there'll be little otsumami like little pinching snacks on the side that are salty and make you want to drink more a lot like bar nuts right it makes you want more more beer more whiskey so kumiko has always been built on a very strong um, food program my business partner is chef noah sandoval he's the executive chef owner of oriel which is a two michelin starred restaurant just across the across the street from us really and he has a really beautiful food program before the pandemic we had a tasting menu that we served in the basement called kiko which actually got a michelin star uh Sadly, that's not open right now, of course, but we've been doing, we switched to more like comfort food, but Japanese comfort food. And our chef de cuisine, Emery, has been so kindly making just all of my favorite foods. So there's Japanese curry rice, gyudon, which is thinly sliced beef and onions simmered in a sweet, savory tamari dashi that's served over rice. Something like tamago sando, Japanese egg salad sandwiches. We're doing katsu sando, which is a bread and fried pork cutlet sandwich that's really tasty. So just easygoing food that will hopefully bring some joy to people and taste really good with our carryout cocktails and, and sake. Selling lots of sake now. I know you're making me hungry. I've watched, you know, I obviously <laughs> I follow you on social media and I see the pictures, especially the one, the egg salad sandwich that you're speaking of, you know, it looks so good. Yeah. And it's so simple, you know, eggs, QP mayonnaise, that's the key mm. and not so secret ingredient, but QP mayonnaise <laughs> and salt, white pepper. So. <laughs> yeah, that's what's that sounds so good. And, you know, curry is curry rice, the Japanese curry. And, and that's like a whole nother topic of all the different curries from the different countries. But the the Japanese curry is is something else. Curry don. I remember eating that a lot. Yes. You know, and so you're open till seven. And then do you continue your cocktails to go throughout the night or does everything stop at seven? Everything stops at seven. We are a very small team. Mm -hmm. It's Chef Emery and Sergio in the kitchen and then myself with Patrick and Kayla out front. And, you know, we all come in in the morning, open the cafe, and then we all kind of leave together at the end of the evening. So I wanted to make sure it is still a pretty long day, but I didn't want it to be a 12-hour day for anyone. So focusing on the staff's, you know, health, not just like physical, but also mental as well. Mm -hmm. And it's such a stressful time to be working, to be going out and facing the public and interacting with folks who, who don't want to wear their mask or who don't understand why they can't come inside. It's, it's been a very, very tough time. So I wanted to make sure that even if for now it's kind of strange for our regulars who are used to us being a bar, that the priority is the people who are working there. And if we take care of each other, then we'll be able to take care of our guests even better. So yeah, it's a little cafe right now. <laughs> That's great. That's just brilliant that you were able to adapt and, and be agile and 
and do what you needed to do, not to only serve your customers, but to serve your, your staff and, and the people that work with you. Thank you. They're an amazing, amazing team. And we have some of the best regulars. If you're listening, you know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're so happy that you were able to join us today on Served Up, Julia, and for feeling safe enough in this, in this space to share so much about your, your personal journey as well. I just want to thank you for that. Um, I think that it's important that our listeners hear it. Um, There's so much inspiration to gain from your journey. So thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for creating this space. It's nice to share. These are stories that I wouldn't typically share at the bar. And Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of other bartenders and, and chefs as well, we're so often just seen by what we do within those hours that we are in the guest eye and in the public eye at work. But I think there is a lot more to each of us. So thank you for creating this space where we can share a little bit more about who we are. It means a lot. Oh, well, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm one of your biggest fans. So I can't wait to get your book. And I just hope you just keep going. I can't wait to see what you do next, Julia. Thank I think you. You're just scratching the surface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We appreciate you being so open and sharing your story. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we really want to do this month with all the sentiment, you know, going around with the Asian community and the Asian hate. And it's really important for people to hear the voices of Asian leaders like yourself that can talk about your story and the value and the contribution you bring to the greater community. And I know me personally, it's very important because just in general, there's so many amazing, talented bartenders and just people in our industry as a whole, right? From all over the world. And I think it's it's important to share the stories and, and learn where people, where did they get this inspiration and what makes them so unique and talented. So, you know, we really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I'm just um, so happy to meet another Asian sister and I can't wait to go to <laughs> Chicago and, and visit you and visit, you know, Cafe Kumiko and, and be able to go to the bar once it's fully opened. I just super excited about that. Yes, I can't wait to have you. And I would love to make you an Ichigo Miruku anytime. So absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Julia. We, you know, we just want to wish you so much good health during this time and a lot of peace. So thank you. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Julie. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!